The Production Expert Podcast is brought to you with the kind support of Arturia, Avid, Source Elements, and RSBE Audio Solutions. Welcome to the Production Expert Podcast. I'm Julian Rogers, and in this week's edition, I'm joined by Asher and Ian Shepard. We're going to be talking about mastering, uh, specifically mastering in the streaming age. Um, welcome in. Good to have you on. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Excellent. Um, <laughs> Asher, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand over to you straight away, actually. Um, what would we like to talk to Ian about? Yeah, I mean, so Ian, for those of us who have sort of been living under a rock and don't, you know, know who you are, could you sort of tell us a bit about how you got into mastering, um, what kind of genre you work on, that sort of thing? Sure. Um, so I've been a mastering engineer for over 25 years at this point. Um, <laughs> number keeps going up, keeps getting scarier. Um I started unusually early. Most people kind of have a career in production or recording first and then go on to mastering, whereas I was trained as a mastering engineer pretty much from from the get-go, straight after college. Um, I worked for an independent um, facility near Cambridge called SRT for 15 years until they closed, and then I set up my own company, Mastering Media, Um, and I've been doing that ever since. But I've diversified somewhat. I mean, when I was at SRT, I... Um, did some recording, lots of mastering, but also some um, DVD authoring and surround sound mixing. And that kind of led on to Blu-ray for my own company. Um, And from there, I got into running a website to try and help people do their own mastering. Um, I've developed plugins. I've got a podcast called The Mastering Show. So all kinds of stuff. Mastering for streaming platforms, you've done you know a few talks on uh, the subject, um, and you do mention that you tend to go for sort of a, a one-size-fits-all approach um, that sort of works well, translates well across all the platforms. What do we need to bear in mind then when we approach mastering that translates well? I actually don't think, that for me, mastering for streaming is not that different to any other kind of mastering. Um, I mean, you're right. I, I like to make one master to rule them all. Um, and for me, that means that my masters could be used for cutting to vinyl or for CD or for streaming. Um, I'm not a fan of super loud mastering and we could kind of get onto that and why. Um, I do like stuff to be loud enough. I love loud music. Um, but I do think there's a point where it just you get diminishing returns. Um, so, and that's something to bear in mind for streaming, because obviously the, one of the big things about streaming is loudness normalization, where the, the loudest material gets turned down, um, because the streaming companies don't want people complaining basically about very loud or very quiet songs. They want it to be reasonably consistent. Um, and one of the things I think to bear in mind is that if you master super loud, it's actually likely to sound worse, not better online Mm, because it gets turned down to the same level as everything else um and then you just start to hear the disadvantages of you know heavy compression maybe heavy limiting clipping distortion all of those kind of things um other than that i mean i think the the reason i don't suggest making multiple masters for different streaming platforms is just that we don't really have any control over what happens i mean even youtube has i think three or four different codecs that they use and a whole range of data rates depending on whether you're on a mobile or a computer or you know where you're listening um so optimizing for any one of those doesn't really make any sense to me it's a bit like mastering in general you know you you have a really high quality monitoring system and listening environment that is very very analytical and and flat and you master for that and then somebody will play it on a system with a massive bass bin and somebody else will play it on a on a phone yeah. speaker or earbuds yeah. and it will it'll sound the way they expect it on but all if of it them. sounds good on that system that you've mastered it on that's you know a correct a well made system then it will sort of translate well on other systems basically exactly and the same thing i think applies to streaming in the sense that you know people listening on a 64 kilobits per second mobile phone bandwidth are going to get the sound that they expect it's not going to be as good as if they're listening to apple lossless or you know one of the title wherever um but so yeah so i think um you know just i i it's business as usual for me really in terms of the the sound quality the the only thing really that i would suggest people pay more attention to is the is the peak level um the true peak level because obviously the the process of encoding something into a a codec for streaming like it's not mp3 usually it's it'll be aac or ogvorbis or whatever these data compressed formats that the streaming services use 
is very aggressive in terms of processing. You know, they have to throw away nine-tenths of the data often. Um, so there are going to be changes to the peak level in the signal when that happens. And they can actually encode and decode cleanly, but some of the players out there will actually immediately uh, reclip the peaks off, if you like. If you end up with peaks going above zero through the encoding and decoding process, you can lose them again on the way out um, before the volume is adjusted for normalization or anything else. So, you know, lots of the services recommend minus one dB true peak. And I, I would say that plus conservative loudness levels is probably the, the most important thing to do. I'm, I'm intrigued by this and I'm glad that you went there um, as quickly as you did because um, before this podcast I was thinking what do I want to ask Ian and I was it was specifically about um, the the effects of uh, um, lossy encoding and uh, and and peak levels um, it's mm. uh, it's a thing that's um, for anyone who hasn't tried it actually um, something that utterly opened my eyes about uh, about some um, lossy compression uh, was um, was just sitting and listening to uh, to the sides channel through through um, uh, MSD coding and just hearing all the chirpy warbly stuff that you get and how astonishing it is that you don't hear that stuff when you're when you're listening to a decently a, a decent bitrate mp3 or whatever it might be um, but uh, Something that really opened my eyes to this was, I, th I think the talk was possibly, uh, it was a while ago, it might have been 2011. It was Thomas Lund, formerly of TC Electronic, he's now at Genelec, very clever man, uh, giving a great talk about loudness. Um, and it was, it was quite a long piece. I featured it on the blog not that long ago, actually. It's a quite a long YouTube video that's so worth a watch. And the single most interesting part of the whole of this kind of, I don't know how long it is, 40-minute hour long or something, uh, presentation, was a table of peak values that that were recommended against different data rates um, for different lossy compression codecs. And um, I'm surprised by the figure of, of minus one actually, just because depending on the uh, on on the specific codec and the specific data rate, I've seen I've seen numbers as low as minus three that are recommended to avoid clipping. I still hear people who sort of are across the whole kind of loudness thing, all of that stuff, but they're still taking that kind of um, peak sample, you know, uh, mastering for for CD approach to peak levels and kind of fractions of a dB below full scale, which is kind of like, mm. I think the words got out there more than it did, but it's certainly something that seemed to propagate more slowly. I don't know. what well, that was a very long non-question, no, but, but I'm, I'm glad you, <laughs> it's I'm glad you raised it. Well, it's, uh, in. What, mean, what would you say? Well, there, there's, the trouble is it's very complicated. Um, because just for example, let's say that minus one true peak is a good number. I'm not saying that actually it is. I think you're right. If you want to be completely safe, then even lower would be better. But there's still huge pressure on people to make things as loud as possible. So submit. You know, if you want to submit something with a peak of minus three, then presumably the whole loudness is going to down, go down by minus three, which is quite a lot. Um, so there's a lot of pressure on people still to make stuff super loud. Ever wondered what it's like to mix an entire album for Kanye? Or layering vocals for Chris Brown? Join your hosts Cash and G every fortnight as we sit down with some of your favourite artists, producers and engineers to talk everything music. Brought to you by Avid Pro Tools. That sounds great. But what are the reasons for, the, for that pressure? If we've got sort of minus 14 laughs, you know, across streaming platforms or most of them, um, what are some valid reasons to still have that kind of loudness war? Uh, thing going on well i mean it depends what you call valid um yeah. <laughs> but i think the, the one that gets um kind of pushed back to me most often because i, I tend to advocate you know I, I don't suggest anybody masters at minus 14 or at minus 12 or minus 16 or any other number um you know i can i can give some guidelines for what i think will give you good results but it's not an overall loudness value for any bit of music for, for me that doesn't make sense mm. um but just for anybody who hasn't kind of come across the thought process before because for example why would you want a heavy rock track and an acoustic ballad to be equal loudness musically mm. they're meant to be slightly different loudnesses so so there's that but the, the probably the most important reason i would say is that not everywhere is using minus 14 and not everywhere is normalizing. So for example, Spotify is one that people do care about and is famous for having normalization. It's been around since I wrote about it back in 2009. Um, but if you try Spotify in a web browser rather than in their app, then you'll find there isn't any normalization still. So 
differences in loudness will still hit you there. And I think the same applies, uh, my memory fails me, there's another populist platform where that's true. Um, YouTube is always normalised everywhere, but YouTube Music does it differently. Um, they use a different distribution loudness and it's a much higher reference level, so you're going to hear variations in loudness more mm. there. Um, also, some people turn it off. You know, it's it's not an option in YouTube, but it is an option on Spotify and Tidal mm, and, yeah. and the other platforms. So it's quite a small percentage, though, right? It is. That's my argument. You know, yeah. I, I I did. It's it's hard to know exactly, but I did some back of the envelope calculations, and I reckon somewhere between, well, somewhere more than eighty percent of people are hearing normalized music these days, mm. um, meaning the loudness has been turned down for the loudest stuff, mainly because of the dominance of YouTube. You know, it's got like four fifths of the the user base of yeah. all music streaming services. So that's a kind of, I, I agree, it's a small percentage, but lots of people still care very much about that. I think mm. the really cruel, ironic thing about this is that I, I put up a survey in um, a popular Facebook group, not my own, just a public, you know, musicians, sound engineers Facebook group, and said, mm. you know, how many people disable normalisation? Mm-hmm. And 75% of the people who answered said they did. So they're hearing the original raw loudness of the files. Okay. Whereas Spotify, I've heard, say that only 17% of users actually go into the preferences to change the defaults at all. Yeah, and, that's what I've heard. By yeah. default, Spotify normalises everything. So that means that 75% of the people who care most about the music, which is mm. engineers and musicians, yeah, yeah. are listening yeah. to it in a way that is different than the general public do, that most users do. So, but and I mean, you know, so right or wrong, that's the reason I get back is that, you know, not everything is normalised. CDs are still not normalised. Um, and also people get annoyed by normalisation. They feel that it kind of treads on their creative toes. You know, if, if I want to make something really, really loud, why shouldn't I? And how dare they turn oh. it back down again? Mm. Um, that, I actually think, is a kind of um, an unfortunate side effect of the fact that Lots of places use track normalization, so they they normalize all the songs to be the same. Yeah, and and that has that unfortunate effect that I mentioned, where you might have an acoustic ballad that's as loud as a rock tune. So, so mm. now would probably be a good time to talk about album normalization. That's where I was going. Yeah, oh, yeah. exactly. Let's do, let's do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, so tidal do things differently. They so album normalization is where you measure the loudness of all the songs on the album. You find mm. the loudest song, and you use that as the adjustment. So rather than, you know, plus three for one song and minus two for another one, you have, say, minus three for all the songs on an album. So that means you get the loudest stuff is of a consistent level, Mm -hmm. but then everything else maintains its artistic... Flow. Yeah, relationship to the other songs. If if it was mastered to be a little bit quieter, you'll hear it a little bit quieter. And the the thing that Tidal do is different is that they use album normalisation all the time, even if you're in shuffle or a playlist. Okay. Um, and that works really well. Um, Elko Grimm, a uh, friend of mine, uh, works at HKU University, um, did research for Tidal and found that actually 80% of people would choose or prefer to keep album normalisation on all the time. So Interesting. the latest AES guidelines recommend that to streaming services. Um, I was kind of somewhat involved in helping put that together and we hope that that will get adopted because I think that will make people hate normalisation less yeah. because they'll feel like those those creative decisions are being preserved. Yeah. I mean, I can see how that would be a good thing, but I've sort of been led to believe, and a lot of people have, that loudness is always perceived as better um, because of that sort of psychoacoustic effect uh, that comes into play. Um, but you're saying that a lot of people would actually prefer a more kind of dynamic uh, master, even if it's slightly lower in volume. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's really interesting, though, because I think it's mostly subconscious. You know, I mean, I think this is something that most musicians and engineers care passionately about, but that most normal music fans wouldn't notice. You know, they wouldn't be able to listen to it and go, oh, that one's super loud and that one's got way more dynamics. Um, but I think subconsciously, the hyper-compressed, hyper-limited stuff is more fatiguing to listen to. I have a personal theory that that's why the chart show is more exhausting to listen to than regular radio, because it's back-to-back music, pretty much, without the 
interjections of DJs and other different content in between the songs. So you just kind of get this. I remember noticing that when I was a kid, you know, just feeling worn out after listening to the top 40 um, in a way that you're not so much when there's more variety in the dynamics. But yeah, I mean, the, the evidence shows that people don't really care very much about the overall loudness. They like to hear the difference between loud and quiet songs in an album, which is why album normalization, even in shuffle and playlist, is a great idea. But as far as the overall loudness is concerned, they're really not that bothered. Achoria has a wide selection of software effects, including three compressors, three filters, three preamps, and three delays you'll actually use. The latest release, Three Delays You'll Actually Use, includes Delay Tape 201, Delay Memory Brigade, and the unique and experimental Delay Eternity. A bundle of selected effects, called the AudioFuse Creative Suite, is included with all AudioFuse audio interfaces. Visit Achoria.com to find out more on the effects you'll actually use. I want to kind of um, put a, a word to both of you, actually, and kind of because I think it's quite relevant to, to this mm. conversation, and and see you know, how much you hear this word and what it means when you do, and that's competitive. Oh, I hear that all the time. I mean, it's all over my um, uh, limiters. The limiter that I use it sort of gives me references for competitive masters. So, okay, yeah. interesting. Okay, and Ian. Yeah, I, I hear it a lot. Um, I and it, it generally means very loud. You know, um, the. I think this is another, for me, it's sad because it's another mm. misconception in the industry. I mean, you know, you were asking why do people still feel the need to make things loud? And it's because the idea is so baked in now to everybody's heads, mm. you know, artists, labels, execs, um, everybody, that, that, that louder is better and that you need to be loud in order to be successful, in order to sound right, in order to sell lots of copies, all that stuff. Um, there's, there's actually mm. people who have done academic research that shows that none of that holds up. <laughs> when you when you look at you know there's people who've plotted graphs of you know the loudest versus the most successful stuff of all time, and it's all over the shop. There mm. isn't a pattern. Not, um, and I mean, my other favourite example actually is is SoundCloud because SoundCloud is a platform that's very important to lots of independent musicians. Yeah. There's no normalisation there currently, so in theory the loudness war is in full effect. But mm -hmm. if you head over and listen to their top twenty. Well, top 100 songs on the on the platform the loudness is all over the shop i mean i literally the first time i tried it the second song was 12 db lower oh, well, that's than a, the yeah. one before and 12 db is a lot you know i mean you, you can quibble about whether 3 db is noticeable 12 db is, is a huge difference but if it was required to be super loud to be successful then how did that really quiet song get to number yeah, two it's, it's, it's it wasn't a quiet true. track it was it was an aggressive genre yeah. i mean one thing we spoke about in the uh, couple of weeks ago i think on the podcast uh, about mixing is that you know a lot of mixes have become really really bright these days obviously and obviously that affects people's perception of the loudness uh, people get used to hearing really really sort of bright mixes have you experienced that or i've it's, it's something i've heard people say and i haven't noticed it so much to be honest um mm. if anything lots of stuff to me sounds a little bit warm and, and thick still mm. um so so not really what i would call bright i do think there is a risk that that's going to happen because you know one of the things about normalization uses loudness units lufs mm. um you know they measure the overall lufs value of a song and then they they adjust them to be more consistent um and lufs i think rightly puts the most importance on the area of the of our hearing that's most sensitive which is the upper mids basically yeah. and is less sensitive to to bass so that means that one way to make things feel loud even though they're not measuring that loud is to add a load of bass mm -hmm. and then the other thing you can do is add a load of top as well yeah. so you know i i think there is a risk that people mm -hmm. try and game the system if you like yeah, yeah. to try and make things stand out when normalization is in play my when I've tried, I've tried it as a test and I just found it was not very successful. You know, you, you have to make things sound really quite unpleasant to get any real noticeable effect. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So I think anybody who's doing that is probably shooting themselves in the foot. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, people are always going to try and game the system, whatever the system yeah, stand is. Out, yeah. um, so that's unfortunate. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, do you think as well, and maybe we're sort of hopping from you know topic to topic a little bit, but um, in terms of spatial audio, that's kind of changing 
to use that term, changing the game a little bit in terms of loudness levels and, and dynamic kind of masters? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually quite excited about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, partly because I love surround sound. So, you know, the idea of there being more surround sound mixes in the world is something that makes me happy. Mm. <laughs> um, but the reality is that most people are hearing, you know, Atmos and, and other spatial formats on earbuds mm. with emulated binaural audio. But yeah, the thing that's exciting for me is that to, I'm sure you've covered this in order to have enough headroom to be able to deliver the same mix on 12 or more speakers and on earbuds. Mm. The Atmos in particular specifies this minus 18 LUFS yeah. um, for the loudest material. And that means that there's not the same pressure in Atmos to mm. make stuff insanely loud yeah, as there is great. in stereo. So you just tend to get more dynamic mixes because mm. I'm not saying this is universally true, but everyone I've spoken to who mixes and masters in Atmos, is just like, oh, it's such a relief. You know, I don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. I can just focus on making it sound good. Yeah. Um, and it's... You know, I think it's a little bit of a wild west. It's early days out there. I've heard some Atmos mixes that I was not at all happy about, but I've heard some that are fantastic. And the ones that are fantastic, one of the things I love about them is the fact that they are more dynamic. And I hope that people will, you know, experiment listening to the to the spatial version and to the stereo version and decide to listen to the spatial version for those reasons and start to enjoy that and, you know, expect it more. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I, I hear lots of people saying, oh, no, I hate spatial mixes and I would always choose to listen to the stereo so as always it's a matter of taste yeah absolutely um but it makes life a lot easier if you're a sort of mixer certainly a mix engineer um to not have to keep thinking about uh the loudness wars absolutely I think um there's lots of other complicated stuff to do with normalization in Atmos that that kind of replaces all of that from what I've heard um but uh yeah I think just well, th th this is why I'm a fan of normalization. It's not because I particularly, you know, like I say, I really like loud music. I like listening to music loud. Um, what I don't like is the idea that people ha feel they have to do something in order to sell records or in order to get the sound or in order to be credible or to compete or whatever those things are. You know, it's I would just like people to be able to do what they think is best for the music um, to make it, you know, people laugh or sing or dance or cry or whatever it is um and then and, and know that the loudness is not going to be an issue you know that they're not taking some kind of which i think is the reality these days to be honest you know i mean i my masters are like i say tend to be in the minus 14 to minus 10 lufs range depending on you know what they're like that's nowhere near as loud as a lot of mainstream stuff but when you hear them on a streaming service they sound fantastic um to me anyway <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm sure they do um uh, we were at sort of um jonas westling i don't know if you know him mix engineer studio a couple of weeks ago mm -hmm. and he mixes a lot of uh disney soundtracks oh, yeah. um and i think he said that they were mastered to minus five lufs which i thought is incredibly loud but for some reason the, the mix was still perfectly intact at least it sounded really clean the drums are really good I, I don't know how they did it I don't know if you've got any sort of gems or, or I tricks I don't know why or, they you know. did it but <laughs> yeah I don't know <laughs> apparently it's a sort of thing for I don't know the cinema or something but they, they want it really really loud and in your face um, that's surprising I mean I wouldn't have thought that applies in cinema because cinema uses Dolby guidelines for playback and there's a ton of headroom mm. um and also, I mean, for me, my experience is that quite often film soundtracks tend to be a bit more dynamic than, not always, um, but yeah, because they've come from somewhere that started out quite dynamic, quite often they will mm. also be mastered in a way that's quite dynamic. Yeah. Um, as far as, I mean, the, I think another thing that people misunderstand is that I, I, because I talk about loudness so much and because I talk about balanced dynamics and not pushing things so loud, I think people maybe think that I'm saying that it's not possible to make a great sounding super loud record. You know, I've got lots of really loud records in my collection that I listen to very happily. Mm -hmm. Some of them sound terrible, but there are also some really dynamic <laughs> ones that sound terrible as well. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think for me, I always feel like, well, what could it have sounded like if it had had more room to breathe? You know, it's not yeah. that artist XYZ, I listen to it and think it sounds terrible. It's just, well, especially when I compare an Atmos mix, you know, if you just toggle the the option on your iphone and flick across to listening in spatial and suddenly you hear the same thing but with more dynamics and it's 
well, that sounds just as good and actually probably Be- a bit better. better. Yeah. Mm. Um, I mean, I can imagine it would sound better in all cases, really, or most of the cases. I mean, the other thing is what he means by minus five. Um, well, he showed me the waveform. He showed all of us the waveform. It was just completely crushed, really. It was well, just completely sort of a block. I yeah. have a word I used to describe that. It's called toothpaste. Toothpaste, oh yeah. <laughs> toothpaste mixes. You, you make a good point though about um, uh, the... Uh, basically, there's, there's, a, there's an element of choice in here. If you're um, working to uh, a, a loudness normalised standard, it doesn't mean that you don't have the aesthetic choice to limit the hell out of what you're doing and it will still comply. You don't have to use that all of that. To, uh, there seems to be some idea that by, by pushing this down and having all this extra headroom and space for dynamics that somehow that's that's compulsory, you, that you have to use it. But if there's an aesthetic choice, mm. the sound of heavily, heavily limited music is something that established itself over a couple of decades. And I hear arguments from people. I mean, Ian, tell me if you, whether you hear this about kind of... You, it has to sound like that to be right for the genre. Yeah, I mean, you... You hear it a lot about metal, which is odd because quite a lot of metal stuff is actually still quite dynamic. Mm. Um, you also hear it about EDM, you know, the, and mm. kind of electronica. Um, and there is definitely an aesthetic to especially heavily limited drums. You know, the kind of, there's, they're kind of, I, I always think they sound flat. You know, it's kind of, mm. it's not like it has a transient at the beginning. And it's, it's almost like they, you get a gated reverb effect. You know, that thing where it kind of goes. Yeah. Because <laughs> the transient is so flat and then the rest of it is so loud afterwards. So th- that's definitely a creative sound. My argument is always, well, you could do that if, if that's the sound you want. Mm. You put a limiter in on the mix bus for the drums. And just set the ceiling lower than zero. and you- Exactly. Just set the ceiling lower. <laughs> and then you've got more space for everything else. And people are not yet generally doing that. But that's mm-hmm. that's effectively what you get with normalization, right? If somebody makes something really, really heavily mm. limited, but then it gets reduced in level to as the similar levels as everything else, you've then got the aesthetics. Mm. Um, but it works in terms of loudness. But um, it's not a it's not a loss, is what I'm saying. Of kind of like if you, if you intended it to sound like that, and then someone just turns the whole thing down, it's the same mix. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's so the point. It's, it's that, that you've intended it to sound like that. Nothing's yeah. been taken away, is what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I think about normalization. Is you there's freedom, right? It, mm. Anybody who wants their music to sound like that can absolutely do that. But if you don't, you've also got the freedom to do that. And the problem, mm. you know, without normal, this is the thing. I mean, normalization's not perfect. You know, it's it's still developing. It's improving all the time. I hope it's going to get better. Um, but as kind of annoying and complicated as it is. Uh, it's still better than having 12 dB or more differences between songs yeah. um, in my book, you know, when they're in the similar genre, you know, which you can get easily just by listening to something that was, you know, a classic track versus a modern release. Mm. Mm. Um, the other, th- you mentioned there about it being a choice. Um, and I think the same thing applies. There's a, there's a lot of debate um, around at the moment, you know, the difference between uh, true peak and non-true peak aware limiters yes. um, and whether or not one sounds better than the other. And I think there's a lot of confusion because I think one thing that lots of people do is they will start with a, a sample peak limiter, get something that's sounding good, or maybe mm. you know their, their favourite limiter adds a true peak feature. So they take something that they think already sounds great and then they enable the true peak function and suddenly don't think it sounds as good. And that's basically just because there's more limiting going to happen, right? Because the true peak limiter is effectively more sensitive Mm -hmm. um, than a sample peak limiter. And I think if people tested it instead by starting with true peak enabled, getting it to sound great, and then trying disabled it, I don't Mm -hmm. think they would suddenly think it sounded way better or or worse when they. So there's no sort of scientific reason for it to sound better or worse, really. Well, (laughs) I had a very interesting discussion. with Fabian from Tokyo Dawn, um, who make the TDR Nova and a few other fantastic and very affordable uh, plugins, mastering plugins and otherwise. Mm. And he made the point that the sample representation of digital audio is not accurate. The, mm. when, you rec- when you rebuild it into an analog waveform, that's the actual musical waveform. So all musical waveforms will actually have values in between the samples that could be slightly higher or slightly lower. Um, So if you have a true peak aware or an oversampled limiter, 
effectively what you're saying is it's more aware of the musical waveform as it really is mm. right it's not processing the raw numbers that are just a kind of theoretical representation of the music it's it's responding to something that is closer to the actual analog signal mm. so this, from is, his point, this is the myth of yeah. the staircase that doesn't actually happen right the, the sample here. limiter works on the staircase <laughs> version that doesn't really exist um whereas a uh, in particular, an oversampled limit. I mean, the differences between a true peak limiter and an oversampled limiter are apparently quite subtle. <laughs> I can't claim to understand all of them. But if it's oversampled, you're getting a more accurate representation of the original waveform. And if you have a limiter that's responding to that, in theory, you're going to get a more analogue sounding limiter. Okay, so I imagine you prefer to use a true peak limiter. Right. I prefer to use, um, yeah, true peak or, or, or oversampled pretty oh, much oversampled. always. Yeah. yeah, that's my okay. personal thing. I mean, I then got into a huge debate with people on Gearspace about whether having an analogue sounding limiter was a good idea or not. <laughs> um, you know, and, What was uh, the argument? Well, I mean, I was saying, surely you want that. And mm. Fabian was saying, surely you want that. And there were engineers on there saying, no, I want stuff that's super loud and if a sample limiter enables me to get that i don't care about the true peaks i don't care about a few peaks going above zero mm. um you know i disagree with that but i'm and that's why i say it's a kind of a choice you know if you come mm -hmm. at it saying i want this to be as loud as possible i can achieve this with a sample limiter and i'm not prepared to compromise by using a, a true peak limiter or an oversampled limiter that's a choice whereas i come from the other angle of saying well i want something to sound as, as analog in inverted commas as, as possible mm -hmm. and as natural as possible. And I, to me, you know, I was trained from the get-go at the beginning of my 25-year career that, you know, clipping uh, that overs, as you call it, you know, when the samples hit zero are unacceptable and are a bad thing. So that's my mindset. And I kind of yeah. start from that and work back from there. They're just two different viewpoints. It's not necessarily that one is right or wrong. I mean, it's certainly true that a lot of chart music in particular a lot of major label releases are full of uh into sample peaks you know mm. sample peaks that hit zero and, and that go over when you decode them um and it's not it's not affecting their sales um yeah. you know so but again for me i think i'm probably gonna do a blog post about this or a, a podcast episode or something because well I, I just feel like just because everybody's doing it doesn't mean it's the best thing to do the Production Expert Podcast is made possible using Source Connect Now from Source Elements, the free way to record high-quality audio over the internet. Need to record an interview or a podcast like this one remotely? With Source Connect Now, you can. Using a Chrome browser, you'll get ISDN-equivalent quality audio without the need to install any additional software. Register for your free account at now.source-elements.com. I, I really like the point you're making about the changing attitude to clipping. This uh, ties in quite neatly with a, a post I did on the blog I don't know, a couple of weeks ago or so um, that was prompted by a conversation like that about kind of like people of uh, certainly of my vintage absolutely approach digital audio as like, hey, clipping's bad. And there's a whole, whole bunch of people who are going, no, no, I've got plugins specifically to do it and have have opinions about which do it best. And this opened up a bit of a bit of a an area that I hadn't looked at closely enough in the past about clipping and found a lot more there that was of interest than I expected at the beginning. So, you know, it, it's, it's another kind of incredibly complicated <laughs> topic, right? Because, I mean, I, I mean, for a start, there is more than one kind of clipping. You know, there's, there's hard digital clipping where you just slice the peaks of the waveforms off. And I think I see people debating what the best way to achieve that is, which makes no sense to me because it, it's virtually a, a Keep mathematical process. Keep going and you'll find you know? it. <laughs> yeah, it, it just happens. But then there's analog soft clipping, you know, kind of when you overdrive some analog circuitry or you push analog tape too hard or, or whatever, that's, a, that's another. And then in between that, there's a whole kind of infinite variety of, of different styles and types of clippers. And I use soft clipping Do you myself. use Kazrog by any chance? Yeah, I've experimented with, with Kazrog. Uh, I'm more likely to use standard clip these days. Um, okay. Although I haven't tried the latest version of Kazrog. Um, standard clip has lots more control that I like. Um, but actually, um, since the TC Electronic MD4 plugin came out, that's the that was the the algorithms that I had access to on the System 6000 for a large part of my career when I was working at SRT. And now you can get it in a plug-in that's £300 or something, which is amazing. But that that has a really nice soft clip algorithm in it. Um, 
and quite often that will do the trick for me. You know, I, I use it sparingly. I use it when I want a particular effect rather than as a go-to. Um, but again, all of these things are creative choices. Um, so yeah, the, the the topic of clipping is another kind of rabbit hole that you can mm-hmm. spend a lot of time happily lost in. Mm-hmm. Isn't yeah. it? Um, I, so um, time is kind of moving ahead and we should probably get out before too long and move on to, to find of the week. But before we go there, I want to raise um, uh, s- something which is just um, when I th- when when I think about um, uh, what people's expectations around getting something mastered are for right or wrong, I I found like most people expect things to come back sounding. One of the ways in which it sound different is that it'll sound wider. Wider, um, yeah. and width is a bit of a double-edged sword. Handle with care, really. But um, Ian, anything to say on the subject to kind of like come um, uh, manipulating the width of recordings? Um, it's one of my favourite tricks in mastering <laughs> um, because it almost always sounds impressive. Mm. But I only do it when it's necessary. You know, um, occasionally you get something where things are too wide and you need to control things a little bit or maybe go back and ask for a revision. It's a nice thing to be able to work on when the music needs it. You know, if, if it's going to have a good beneficial musical effect, then it's almost certain to impress people. Mm. But that's a, that's a little bit shallow, you know, honestly. I mean, I think it's very important. And I think I like a nice, wide, spacious stereo image. That's just a taste thing. The one thing I would say is I always try and do it as simply as possible. So if I can achieve it just by ch- tweaking the, the the balance between the mid side, um, you know, which is basically pretty much um, transparent, you know, I mean, you'll lose a little bit of something when you go to mono, um, but nothing else is going to get messed with. You know, there are some really nice tools out there now that, that can achieve really sophisticated stuff, but um, I, I really kind of use those with care personally. My uh, guilty pleasure is putting a wave center on the majority of my tracks before I send them off. I, d- I don't tend to sort of master most things myself, but before I send to a client, I sort of uh, do a tiny bit of mastering and a wave center, just boosting the, the sides ever so slightly, just kind of, I don't know, just add something a little bit, you know, of extra sparkle, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, it, it often brings out the it'll often bring out the space you know yeah. it'll, the ambience around things so yeah these yeah. things just sound a little bit more spacious and a little bit more open which can be mm. nice having said that you know there's it's a bit like saturation and parallel compression you know th- those three things stereo width saturation I, I just they used to be tricks of the trade word got out and now everybody's doing them and as far as i'm concerned they're doing them just way too much mm. <laughs> yeah yeah you know yeah. and you just end up with uh you know absolutely no Low end, basically. Yeah. Well, yeah or, yeah, or just, you know, kind of just a kind of this huge, dense, kind of mushy wash of sound, you know, mm-hmm. with no real definition or clarity. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it used to be that we made things a bit more like that in mastering because stuff that would come in probably, you know, just needed a little bit of extra compression and maybe, you know, thickening up a little bit. And, and these days it's kind of like the opposite is true. It's like, oh, can we not just have a bit more space and a bit more room to breathe? Do you ever find that you narrow a mix? Uh, yes, occasionally. Um, is that just it, because it's been overcooked before it got to you, though? <laughs> um, it can be, or it can be. You know, you can people can achieve it unintentionally. You know, really widely spaced mics, mm. um, or just you know lots of synth patches where you know it's it's kind of there's demoitis in the you know everybody wants their synth to sound amazing out of the box, and and those things don't always fit into the mix in the best way. I think yeah. you need to be careful narrowing it because you run the risk of you know causing comb filtering or things cancelling out and just mm. sounding odd. So I would do it if I felt that something was too wide and it can be done cleanly without causing a problem. Mm. Um, but it's more, you know, whereas widening, usually if you want to do it, you can yeah, and you'll be fine. Yeah. I think with narrowing things, it might be uh, better to, to, to go for a mixed revision. If it's that wide, then monocompatibility is probably... And, and on the subject, so, I mean, how important in 2023 do you think monocompatibility is? I actually think it's quite important um, because so many people are, well, I guess now we're getting phones that have stereo speakers. So maybe that's less of an issue, but lots of people listening, you know, on smart speakers at home Mm -hmm. that mono everything. The only kind of thing that's really going to be a red flag for me is if somebody's, you know, accidentally polarity inverted one channel of a, of a piano, for example, you know, so you, you mono it and most of the 
instrument disappears. Mm. Um, if it's just quite wide and that doesn't work quite so well when it's translated to mono, it might be something that I mention to the clients just to mm. say, you know, have you considered this? Is that something you're worried about? Um, and usually, honestly, they say no. <laughs> um, I always check everything in mono. Um, it's just kind of a, you know, a habit from, from back in the day. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, you do need to be careful. And especially, you know, with super wide bass sounds or synth sounds you know you can have something that sounds absolutely incredible in stereo and then you hit the mono button and it just falls to pieces so that would definitely be something that i would flag up to the client to make sure that they you know they're happy with it as it is and they don't want to do some kind of tweak what's the sort of main uh, problem to use that word that you find with many people's mixers do you, do you have a sort of a reoccurring issue that that comes up a lot or i think honestly it's still people just making stuff too loud um, and, and I think that's something that goes right the way up the industry. You know, I was, I was chatting to, to Bob Ludwig about it just six months ago. Even really big name mixers now, because we have this weird situation where because mastering engineers are being put under pressure to master things so loud, mm-hmm. mix engineers get unhappy about how that turns out. You know, they do a mix that they really like and then somebody requests it to be absolutely hammered and they don't like the way that it sounds. So at some point... They decide, well, I'm going to take control of this. If that's going to be done to it, I'm going to I do it myself. Baking their influence onto the recording before it reaches the next stage. Yeah. Yeah. If it's there in the mix, I mean, quite aside from the fact that you can't undo it technically, sonically, mm-hmm. um, everybody's heard it. Everybody's fallen in love with that version. So to yeah. take a step back from that becomes almost impossible. You know, I hear all the time is that mastering engineer, you know, now mastering engineers are getting fed up with being blamed for making things super loud because they say, well, it was like that when it got to me. You know, yeah. it, was, mm. it was minus five. I mean, genuinely, people are getting mixes at minus five. And as oh, a mastering engineer, there's nowhere to go from that, you know. Um, so, no, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily a problem. But of course, you know, I've been talking about this stuff for so long now that not that many people come to me who want something super loud. The majority of people, you know, know that I'm going to give them something more balanced. That's a good point, actually. Dynamics, yeah, and they're, yeah. they're happy with it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but another one is is sometimes just excessive saturation. You know, they, the people going for that, in quotes, analog feel, and they've just piled in the, the parallel compression or the whatever it is. For some reason, PSP Vintage Warmer often is a culprit for stuff that oh, comes yeah. into me. I can imagine. Um, it's, you know, all of these tools can be fantastic, but it's very easy to overdo them. Um, so yeah, but the the good thing is that that's a fairly easy fix. You know, I, I do them a master. I say, listen here, this, this is how I'm hearing it. I think it sounds pretty good. I'm just curious. Maybe it could sound even better if you want to supply me with something that's where you just eased back a bit on the the limiter or the the maximizer a bit, you know, Mm. do you want to try that experiment? Um, and sometimes they say yes. And sometimes they say no. And when they say yes, we almost always, in fact, always, I manage to get a result that everybody's happy with, you know, they're Mm. happy with it. I'm happy with it. Um, well, you sound like you're very hands-on, which is good. So you sort of give a, you know, a tips to the mixer that can then go back and sort of make tweaks. Um, so that's handy. Yeah, absolutely. If it's necessary, um, it's. Mm. I'm, I mean, there are mastering engineers where their clients almost want them to throw it back. You know, the, the, yeah, <laughs> they almost yeah. seem to expect them to go. No, that's rubbish. Do it again. And and that's not me. I'll always take you know because I I think it's important to have respect and empathy for what people are trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody's been working on something for six months or a year or even longer, I think it's up to us to, to listen and, and try and understand that um, and help them get even closer to what they're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. So that's always my first step. But if there's something where I feel that I'm not able to achieve what I'm looking for or what they're looking for, yeah. and there's some way that, that maybe a tweak can help, yeah, I'll always flag that up to them, um, yeah. you know, just so they have a choice. And quite often they say, no, it's got to be out tomorrow or I'm sick to the back teeth of it. Um, <laughs> just just go with it, yeah. <laughs> which, which is fine. But, um, yeah. you know, sometimes people really appreciate that. And I think communication is just super, super important yeah, in mastering. You know, really I is. I get people sending me things saying, oh, I had this done by XYZ Studio and I don't really like it. And I always say, well, have you told them? You know, have you asked them to do a revision? And quite often they'll say, well, no, I wouldn't feel able to do that. Um, and I always, you know, I mean, but it's not all their fault because I, in my opinion, the mastering engineers should be making them aware that they can have a conversation. That it, it's, it's, you know, it's a collaboration. I've seen examples of that where, you know, sort of certain mastering engineers will just take the track um, and then just give it back. And they've had no, they haven't reached out. They haven't sort of had any communication, said anything about the track. And you're sort of put in a place where you can't really ask for a revision because you haven't really had that conversation in the first place. So, um, yeah, I find it really important. Yeah, I find that really odd. I mean, I, you know, I think we should always be open 
to revisions. Um, and I've heard stories, I've had people tell me about mastering engineers who say, well, no, that's the master. That's, you know, no, you can't have that. Why did you come to me if you didn't want that? <laughs> um, which, you know, at the end of because I think we offer an opinion and then, but but it's always the, the client's music. You know, it's, the, it's their vision. Um, so ultimately they, they get to decide, I think. So it sounds to me like uh, after a really interesting conversation about all sorts of technical things, like so many things, it comes back to people and conversations and, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, being decent human beings with each other. Yeah. It sounds like a, a fantastic time to move along. And let's, let's go to Find of the Week. RSPE Audio Solutions design, sell, and install professional audio and video equipment. Their team are available by phone, live chat, or email to receive and process orders. They have everything you need to build or upgrade your home studio to ensure you can continue to work from home. If there is anything they can do to help, reach out or shop online at rspeaudio.com. Julian, would you like to start first with your find? <laughs> I can. This ties in very neatly to the kind of stuff that we've been talking Well, relatively neatly. I've, I've had uh, with me for the last few weeks um, uh, a nice pair of, uh, of Genelec uh, 8341s and a 70-something or other sub, um, but all SAM uh, Smart Active Monitor Genelec stuff. And uh, last week I've... Uh, did what I'd been intending to do with this because uh, I moved into my studio a couple of years ago when I moved into the house. Um, uh, I honestly kind of bodged it in as quick as I could because I'd just bought a house and there was a lot going on. Um, And I never quite got back to sorting it out properly. So there was lots of ad hoc solutions that worked well enough, but yeah. So what I did a couple of weeks ago is I stripped the whole room out, entirely empty, Mm-hmm. And the issue that I had, which will be coming up in a in a in a piece of content on the site, was uh, was that uh, for reasons because of where doors and windows are and stuff, I was I was working the wrong way with big inverted commas around it uh, because I was working it across the room in what well, what's a converted garage, mm-hmm. um, very similar to Russ's studio, very similar to James Ivy's new studio. Mm-hmm. Actually, I mean, it's kind of I'm not alone in doing this. Different but I am to yours, aware that I, it is I, I believe. Wrong. Right, Ian? Is that slightly different to yours? You've got yours long way. I have mine long, long way. My, 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 yep. my home room is a converted garage, yeah. Um, yep. And absolutely, I'm facing what used to be the, the doors. And that's how I am at the moment. But what I did was I thought this is a great opportunity, having this stuff and having access to the grade reporting, which is a thing that's been in place for, I don't know, at least, at least a year or so, um, of these fantastic um, uh, acoustic reports that were generated off the back of the calibration process using these uh, smart monitors so i i took one in my original position took another one the other way around with no treatment in the room this isn't completely bare Mm -hmm. studio and what it really illustrated and i've been kind of digging through the data um with uh um, and drawing some conclusions is is what changes and what doesn't. And it sounds kind of obvious when you say back to it what actually changes. I mean, for example, room modes don't change. It's the same room, but other stuff does. Anyway, it's been a real education uh, and, um, yeah, a uh, very interesting thing to do. Uh, and, yeah, off the back of this, I can make a decision about what suits me. Obviously, a space is occupied by humans and it needs to work for the people who are in it. I still haven't reached a decision about what I'm going to do, actually, but it's mm. been a very interesting that thing to do. Fun, and actually. these reports really help you get some proper hard data to inform mm. your decisions so yeah. yeah that's my find of the week very anyway. nice i like that um yeah i'll just say that um my co-host on the mastering show podcast john tidy did something similar using sonar works so he doesn't actually use the sonar works room connection in his room but he went through the entire calibration process looked at the graphs and went oh okay i've got a problem here and then brought in some acoustic treatment to help with it yeah um which i think you know is I mean, I've got nothing against software uh, correction in a room if it makes things sound better, but I always mm. recommend to people go for the, the speaker placement and the room layout and the acoustic treatment first. There's a lot of so stuff that, whatever, that it will never do. So, yeah, well, yeah. there's stuff that it'll never do, and also just that you're, you know, it's fixing it at the source, you know. Then if you have to use the room correction stuff, you'll be using it much more lightly. You'll probably get a larger sweet spot. You know, it's all going to work better. So, yeah, I think, you know, there are some... Um, and actually, I won't. My, my uh, 
choice of the week is is not um, an audio thing at all, although it is music related. Okay. Um, and I was feeling bad about that. And then I remember just before I came <laughs> on to recommend a site called AM Acoustics. So it's like acoustics with an M after the A, if that makes sense. Uh, AM um, Acoustics. AM, well, AM Acoustics. No, AM Acoustics. Not, I think I've not heard an of A Acoustics. Um, yeah. Dot com, uh, which has some fantastic tools. Like, for example, a really nice room mode calculator um, where you can type in the dimensions of your room and it shows you a lot, it shows you the usual thing of where the modes are and which ones clump together, but also shows you uh, there's a, a 3D visualization of where in the room they will appear, which can be quite interesting in terms of placing possibly absorbers and stuff and there's a there's a bunch of mm. other tools on that that site as well so combined with some kind of measurement like you're talking about um mm. could be really good um, the other thing that i thought of before i came up with that one um well it's not it's my find of the week maybe everybody else already knows about it is a film called who killed the klf um which i actually came out in 2021 and i read a review of it at the time and re- just discovered that I can get it on streaming. So I'm, I haven't mm. seen it, but I'm very much looking forward to watching uh, this film. It's a, they've got previously unheard interviews and then they've dramatised key points from the KLF's career. Um, and the KLF tried to stop it on terms of copyright infringement and then eventually deci- ended up deciding they really quite liked it. So I think um, it sounds like it should be really good fun. So that was I'm looking forward to watching that. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Michelle, what's yours? Um, I just sort of wanted to give a shout out to uh, a boutique company called Pope Audio. I don't know if you've heard of them. Have you heard of them? I, the name rings a bell. I've heard of Pope um, Audio. You have, yeah. They were at Gearfest and they've been running since 2020. Um, it's a guy called Adam who builds everything himself. I think it's his son. It's a younger guy. Um, so... Uh, Adam builds, you know, the interior, all the kind of connections and everything. And the younger guy does the sort of main interface, makes it look pretty. Um, But they've got some really, really nice um, kind of hardware, EQs, uh, choruses and uh, mic pre as well. Um, Yeah. And just really sort of um, a nice kind of small, friendly company and definitely worth checking out. This is 500 series, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Fantastic. Okay. Boutique hardware manufacturers, indies, we like all that stuff. So, yeah, a, a, yeah. a good find. All yeah. right. So, um, well, I mean, there we are. That's uh, that's a really interesting chat with, with Ian. Thanks so much for being on. So uh, um, thank you to Asher. Thank you to Ian. Uh, and uh, we'll be back next week with another edition of the Production Expert Podcast.